Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. We will be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This concludes the reading of God's Word. I think there's a reason that agricultural and construction metaphors or illustrations show up so often in the Bible. Uh, They, I would argue, illustrations from farming life, from building things, they illustrate some of the most important spiritual principles. So let me give you an example. Uh, Earlier this month, my wife and I began remodeling the kids' bathroom upstairs. And four weeks into a project I thought would be finished in two, I've learned something, or rather I'm learning something. You you have to carefully think through how every part of the job, electrical, plumbing, drywall, tiling, lighting, etc., is connected to the final product. You have to make these connections. So, for example, when you rough in the plumbing, you need to know the location and dimensions of the bathroom vanity. Why? So that the pipes don't end up over here, and the sink ends up over here. That's not good. It's nice to get all the drywall mess done early. But I won't know exactly where to locate and cut out that little electrical box for the light until we know where the vanity is, because she says the light has to be centered over the sink in the vanity. And you can't install the vanity, however until the floor tile is done. But you can't tile the floor until the drywall corner is finished. (laughs) You get the picture. It's all connected. And I've lost track of the number of times over the last couple weeks that I have wearily stood in our bathroom door upstairs and thought, okay, how is this part of the project connected to the finished product we're looking for? I just have to ask that over and over and over and over again to keep from making these terrible mistakes. Well, the reason I'm liable to do that is because I, I'm, I really don't know what I'm doing. I, I'm not an experienced contractor. Call Andrew. I have, I have used that friend many times. And I'm not like Andrew. I, I, I'm not an experienced contractor because an experienced contractor would just right? They just see and think of all those things instinctively. They keep the end in view. Well, I would argue, friends, that Christians, a genuine Christian, is no different. They they build and they navigate their spiritual lives with the end in view. And that end is the return of Jesus Christ. He's the eternal Son of God, before whom every human being will give an account for the way we have lived our life 
on this earth. Why? Because God created the universe. Because he created the universe, he's king over the universe. And because he's king over the universe, we're accountable to him as our king. And one day, he's going to return to judge the living and the dead, condemning his enemies, and welcoming his people into the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the end. That's the end of the story. And even as I share that, that that end of the story that we learn from God's word, I'm very aware that we live in a world, and many times this is our own heart attitude, where we think, we think, that we're calling the shots in our life. You know what I mean? For, for good or ill, <laughs> that we're calling the shots. And yet the word of God reminds us that we are not in control of how all of this ends. Why? Because it's not our story, friends. This is God's story. You're merely living in his story. He's calling the shots. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come. Because you want it to come? Because it's part of your idea of what a good story ends like? No, because God makes it come. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, future, What sort of people ought you to be present in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? If you start a home remodeling project and you don't have the end in view, you are going to create a disaster in your home. Trust me. To navigate your spiritual life on earth without the end in view is to create a disaster in your soul. Friends, the end of this whole story is very clear. It's known. It's been revealed. It's, it's guaranteed. The, the question we have to face, and all of us have to face this, And the question that you're actually answering right now, whether you want to or not, through the way you're living your life or not living your life, is are we going to live with that end in view or not? Are we going to live with that inevitable future, the return of Jesus Christ in view or not? The question is not whether Jesus is returning. God's already said he is. The question is whether we'll live with that end in view. And that is what 1 Thessalonians is all about. Living with the end in view. Every chapter of this divinely inspired letter to the church in Thessalonica, which is to give you a little background, was likely written around 50 AD by the Apostle Paul and some co-workers named Silvanus or Silas and Timothy, looking at verse 1. Every chapter of this short letter, it ends with an explicit reference to the return of Christ, to the end of the story, the last chapter in God's story. And and it teaches us how to live, what it means to live, all sorts of various aspects of our life now with that end in view. What kind of aspects? Things like our relationship with God, our sexuality, our work, all of those things. How how do we navigate those elements of life with the end in view? And for those of you listening to me who hear me say that and think, all right, Matthew, I already know all of this. I believe Jesus is coming back. Tell me something new. I have a warning for you. And I will not ask you to humiliate yourself by raising your hand. But if you thought that, Please listen to this, okay? The primary author, Paul, he uses phrases like, you already know. 
or you know. Or my favorite, I have no need to write to you. Eleven times in five chapters. Why? Because he's on to us. Christian types, right? He's on to us. He does, Tell me something new. I, inform my mind. Keep me awake. Entertain me, preacher man. Yikes. Friends, when we come to the word of God, if you've been a Christian for a long time, I would argue with the Apostle Paul, you don't so much need new information, you need help to live in light of what you already know. At least that's my experience. They need help. We need help to live in light of something we've heard before. Because the great battle in Christianity isn't to merely know rightly. It's to live in light of what is true. So there's a lot going on in these first ten verses. Maybe you heard Peter read them and and thought, we're going to be here for hours. We're not. (laughs) We're going to focus on main themes. And I think that the central claim of these first 10 verses is actually pretty simple. A lot going on, but one big idea, okay? Living in light of the end starts with choosing to follow the only one who can deliver us in the end. I'll say that again. Living in light of the end starts, the beginning of that, with choosing to follow the only one who can deliver us in the end. So think of it this way. The way you end depends entirely on the way you begin. And if you want to end well, you have to what? Begin well. And ending well, salvation from death and judgment on that day, starts with what? Placing your faith in Jesus Christ on this day. And that is why Paul focuses in these first 10 verses on what Christians call the doctrine of conversion. Now, don't get hung up on that word, okay? By, that, by conversion, I simply mean how a man or woman comes to walk a spiritual path in this life that ends in deliverance on the last day. How, how do we first set foot on that path? How do we start walking that journey with God, following Jesus? That's what I mean by conversion. Paul's focusing on that. Why? Well, I've already said it. Because living in light of the end starts with choosing to follow the only one who can deliver us in the end. Our our initial choice to follow Jesus that the very beginning of our relationship with God is what I'm talking about when I use the word conversion. That's, that's what Paul focuses on, the beginning of our story, our relationship with God here. And we're going to focus on conversion with him as a result. But don't lose sight of the big picture. The reason the beginning matters is because the end is so important. And how you begin has everything to do with how you end. So, several points about conversion that I want to make from these verses. First, conversion, looking at verses 1 to 3 here especially, produces recognizable fruit. Recognizable fruit, okay? So, after greeting the Thessalonians, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, look down at verse 2, they immediately launch into this outpouring of thanksgiving. And if you've read other letters that Paul has written, you could be thinking, well, here comes the formula. Like, this is what the Jesus people did. Hey, great to see you. Let me thank God for some random things. No, it's not just the thing you do. It's intentional. It's deliberate. Paul's heart, he's the primary author, is overflowing with gratitude because his co-worker Timothy, if you go back and read Acts 17 and 18, has just brought back to him in Corinth a crazy good report of all God was doing in Thessalonica. And so they write, verse 2, look there, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Would to God, friends, that when we look at other Christians around us, the first thing that comes to our mind is thanksgiving to God, not complaint. And notice their thanksgiving isn't isn't generic. It's specific. So what do they thank God for? First, they thank God for the Thessalonians' work of faith. Work of faith. Now, I think it's really easy to pit work and faith against each other, like some major UFC fight, and treat them as polar opposites. So we say things like, you can't earn God's love and acceptance through good works as if we could make ourselves right with God. Rather, we receive God's love and acceptance through our faith or trust in Jesus, who makes us right with God. I hope that's familiar if you've been here a couple weeks because that's exactly what Josh Jr. preached last Sunday from Galatians chapter 1. Question for you, is that true? This is not good. Yes, it is true. It is true. It's absolutely true. However, does that mean that works are bad and faith is good? No, no. It simply means you cannot ask works to do what only faith can accomplish. But that doesn't mean works are bad. To the contrary, we won't be saved without them. Why not? Because they are a vital expression of faith. What what does Paul say in, in Romans Chapter 1, verse 5, he's laboring as an apostle. He's talking about what is he working for in the lives of the people around him? He's working for the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. If you think, see if this makes sense. If you think that works of obedience to God's commands and faith are two completely separate, disconnected things, Paul's fight for the obedience of faith, that phrase, will make no sense to you. But if you recognize, as Paul did, that faith is both an act of obedience and manifests itself through obedience, then good works are not disconnected from faith. They are the fruit of faith. So when Paul thanks God for their work of faith, he means he's thanking God for all their obedience to God's commands that he sees in their lives, that is proceeding from their faith and in turn giving evidence to the authenticity of their faith. For as James says in James 1.17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Pretty clear. I think labor of love is similar. What's that? Well, it's, it's the hard work of unselfishly serving the Lord and his people that's a result of what? Our love for the Lord and our love for his people. The first and second greatest commandments. And yet, both of those things, works that proceed from faith, labor that proceeds from love, that's not easy. It wasn't easy back then. It's not easy today. And as we're going to learn in a couple weeks in in chapter 2, part of the reason that wasn't easy for the Thessalonians is they were getting on the wrong end of some serious persecution and abuse, and ridicule ridicule for being Christians. And, and yet, they didn't waver. They didn't give up. They didn't say, okay, you know what? This is way too hard. Uh, forget you, Paul. No. They demonstrated what? Remarkable, verse 3, steadfastness. Steadfastness. What enabled that kind of perseverance? Where, where did that proceed from? Well, Paul knew the answer. It was their confidence. It was their hope, their sure confidence, that all of their suffering was not in vain. That when Jesus comes back, he's going to vindicate his people and make everything wrong right. And so Paul thanks God also for their steadfastness of hope. And we could spend a long time on what all three of those phrases mean, but, but I don't want us to get bogged down on the details because there's a big picture here. What's the big picture? Conversion to faith in Christ produces recognizable fruit. That's what Paul's seeing. Authentic faith isn't hidden. 
genuine love is obvious. And so, so Paul looks at the Thessalonians' life and he rejoices because he sees evidence, fruit, of a genuine conversion to faith in Christ. What's he see? The cardinal Christian virtues, right? Faith, hope, and love. That's what he sees. Well, what does our culture say? Think about this. Culture says, well, whether I'm a Christian or not, hello, is between me and God. Between me and God. Don't don't be so arrogant as to assume that you, pastor Christian friend man of mine, know the true condition of my soul. (laughs) Is Paul saying that he has an infallible read on the true condition of people's souls? No. No, he's not. He's simply reminding us that genuine faith and hope and love are not invisible. (laughs) Don't miss that. If they're actually present, they will manifest themselves in what? Work and labor and steadfastness. It's things that can be seen in a person's life. Paul sees them in the Thessalonians' life, and so his heart overflows with thanksgiving to God. Now, let me give you an illustration of this. I started with construction. Let's go to agriculture, or my home version of agriculture. Two years ago, I planted what I thought was a green mountain boxwood. How many of you have, anybody in here have any idea what I'm talking about? Eh, got a couple. Okay, I got like three helpers. Great. We'll keep going. A green mountain boxwood next to our front porch. That's a shrub, by the way, if you didn't know that plant. I bought it because the label attached to it on the black bucket thing said green mountain boxwood. It advertised itself as a green mountain boxwood. The nursery was selling it as a green mountain boxwood. My receipt said green mountain boxwood. I paid good money for a green mountain boxwood. But after a year, I started to notice something's not right. It's not branching the way a boxwood branches. It's, it's leggy, not compact. The, the leaves, they, they seemed like the right size and color to my novice eyes, but, but they, were, they were rounded like a, a Japanese holly, not pointed like a boxwood. And when all my other boxwoods in our yard put out in the spring, like boxwoods are supposed to do, all this beautiful new green growth, this plant didn't. It actually started to yellow, which made me think that it was hungry looking for full sun and it was finding absolutely no satisfaction in the shade in which I had planted it because boxwoods can do shade. They like shade. So last month, I, I finally confirmed my suspicion. I dug this thing up. I drove it over to the nursery. And the guy looks at it and says, yep, that's a Steed's Holly. <laughs> because he immediately, how, how could he say that? One look. Because he didn't see any of the telltale signs of a green mountain boxwood. What if that plant looked back at him and said, I am a green mountain boxwood! (laughs) Plants could talk. (laughs) The nursery manager would have every right to say, no, you are not. You have none of the telltale signs. Friends, one of the most important questions you can ask, no matter how long you think you've been a Christian, is this. Do other Christians perceive in my life visible fruit of conversion? Do they perceive that? Humility doesn't say, I know what's really going on inside of me. Shut up. Humility says, Lord, I believe you when you say through your word that faith without works is dead. It's no faith at all. If the fruit of authentic love and genuine faith and, and real hope in Jesus are visible in your life to the people around you such that they are giving thanks to God with you for that genuine fruit of conversion, then what do you do? 
You praise God. You thank God, right, like Paul? And if you see the fruit of authentic faith, genuine love, real hope in Jesus, in somebody else's life, follow Paul's example in telling them, right? I mean, speaking from personal experience, I'd simply say, few things are more encouraging than hearing how someone else sees Jesus working in you. That's crazy encouraging. But Paul wasn't, I mentioned this earlier, he wasn't quick to complain and slow to give thanks. He was quick to give thanks, and he, and he seemed to love nothing more than going around and helping people see, hey, look, God's working in you. Hey, did you see that good fruit? You're a boxwood. It was his MO. Lord, help us to do the same. Why? Because the first thing we learn about this beginning of our relationship with God is that conversion produces recognizable fruit. Point number two. Conversion is a result of a decisive work of God. Verses 4 to 7. So, so think of it this way. Verses 1 to 3 describe what Paul sees in the Thessalonians. Then verses 4 to 7 tell us how that good fruit comes to pass. So remember, verses 1 to 3, Paul's saying, what is the good fruit he sees, not just in the Thessalonians, but the faith, hope, and love that will be visible in any genuine Christian? Verses 4 to 7, he then moves into, well, where is that coming from? What's, what's given rise to that? What's the origin of all this fruit? How do those virtues come to be? Well, look at verse 4. What does he say? For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. He's chosen you. Do, you. do you realize that an arrogant Christian is a contradiction in terms? Utter contradiction in terms. Why? Because the ultimate explanation for the presence of any good spiritual fruit in our lives, authentic faith, genuine love, isn't something you or I have done. It's something God has done, and that before we were even born. Prepare to be humbled. Because behind every work of faith, friend, behind every labor of love, but behind all genuine steadfastness of hope lies something. What is that? The sovereign, loving, choosing activity of God. That's what lies behind all that. A God who mercifully and decisively intervenes in spiritually dead hearts. Not because of who we are or, or who he perceives we could become with just a little bit of assistance, but simply because of who he is. A God who loves the unlovely. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you. To be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number. Impressive. Looking good. Than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you. And chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. And is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. And redeemed you from the house of slavery. From the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt. Do you know friend that from the very beginning of God's relationship with his people. He has been entirely committed to acting in such a way. That he gets all the glory. That's his MO. That's how he rolls. Does work of faith require something from us? Yes. Okay? Does labor of love require something from us? Labor. Yes. Okay, work and love are active words. Quick review. Not passive words. We must choose to trust and love. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, he's simply saying, that the ultimate explanation for the presence of faith, hope, love in somebody's life, that the decisive cause of their conversion is ultimately the sovereign activity of God. 
That's what he's saying. Because no one is born with faith and hope and love just actively abiding in their heart. We're not naturally inclined to those things. What are we naturally? We're naturally faithless and hopeless and and loveless. So what does God do? He intervenes. He breaks in. He, He takes the initiative to do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. He takes spiritually dead hearts and makes us alive. He makes us spiritually awake and alive to his trustworthiness, his loveliness. God causes faith and love to arise within us in keeping with his sovereign purpose. It's a miracle, but it's not a mystery. Why? Well, look at verse 5. The conversion of the elect is a result of two things. The first is in verse 5. The second is in verse 6. First, verse 5, the gospel must be proclaimed. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, he sovereignly intervened in your life, because, verse 5, our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Quick review. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? It's the good news. That's right, Barb. The good news of all Jesus has done through his life, death, resurrection to accomplish salvation for mankind. That's the gospel. Because we need to be saved from the judgment of God on account of our disobedience. And when someone explains that good news, I mean, you could use different words, but you've got to cover those parts, okay? When someone explains the good news, there are times, there are times, probably more than some of us would like to admit or acknowledge, that all of that sounds like mere words. Just religious talk, babble in our ears. But then there are other times. Praise, praise God for the other times, right? When the Holy Spirit takes those words, takes the gospel, and and he brings them to bear in your heart such that you perceive and delight in those words as the very power of God for your salvation. That's not not mere words anymore. That's that's power. Spiritual change. And and that is what happened when Paul preached the gospel to the Thessalonians. His proclamation was accompanied by spiritual power, but by the work of the Spirit, granting faith in the hearts of those who listened to him. They they believed they needed a Savior, and they trusted that Jesus is that Savior. And that, friends, is what happens anytime somebody becomes a Christian. Because conversion, please hear this, it's not... Mental recognition of the truth or, or agreement or assent that the teachings of Jesus are, are helpful and wise. Or it's, conversion isn't even saying, hey, I think Christian people are cool and I just love this whole like belonging community thing. No, no, a genuine conversion is a result of a powerful work of God. Through the preaching of the gospel, whereby the, the Holy Spirit enables you. It's like turning the lights on to see, oh my word, I need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. That's conversion. And that's a result of two things. First, the gospel must be proclaimed. That's the emphasis in verse 5. Second, look at verse 6. The gospel must be received. Verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. How their story started. For you received the word, the word of the gospel, in much affliction. We'll talk about that. With the joy of the Holy Spirit. So what's going on? When Paul proclaimed the gospel accompanied by the powerful, faith-giving, conviction-granting work of the Spirit, the Thessalonians responded by receiving the gospel. They chose to follow Paul's example and Jesus' example of obedient trust and submission to God the Father, no matter the cost. And get one thing straight. The cost for these guys was a lot higher than it is Mm. For most of us. Because their own countrymen, if you go ahead and read chapter 3, beginning in verse 14 and 
not 3.14, 2.14, and go from there. You'll, you'll see they faced some serious persecution. Choosing to follow Jesus didn't make their life easier. It made their life harder. So think about that. How, how often do we shake our fist at God when we've chosen to trust him, chosen to obey him, and then things seem to get worse, not better? I thought I was doing what you wanted me to do, Lord. If that's true, why haven't you come through for me? Why why am I still experiencing so much trouble within me and trouble around me? What's up? Well, for starters, friend, I would simply say you have forgotten that you chose to follow a suffering Savior. Suffering Savior. Matthew 7, 14, for the gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Why would anyone in their right mind want to walk a hard way? We can just hear words like that. Hard way. Yep, love Jesus. Go. Like, three cheers for hardness. It's like, what? Why would anyone want to walk a hard way? Friend, if you're following Jesus, you chose to walk a hard way because the Spirit of God enabled you to see that this hard way leads to life leads to life. When you choose to walk in it and follow the footsteps of Jesus, you, you become with a great cloud of witnesses, both always sorrowful and always rejoicing, groaning through tears with, with all creation, longing for Jesus to make all things new, and yet casting your cares and sorrows on the Lord with a joyful confidence that all your hope in him is not going to be disappointed. Only the Holy Spirit can give that kind of joy and affliction, friends. He did it for Jesus. He's eager to do it for us too. The decisive cause of conversion is a work of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. Because when that gospel is proclaimed in power and received with joy, even in the midst of sorrow, a spiritual miracle occurs. And new life is born. Fulfilling the sovereign plan of God. Man proclaims the gospel. Man receives the gospel. The work of God is decisive in both. So what have we seen? We've seen the fruit of genuine conversion. Faith, hope, love. We've seen the cause of genuine conversion. Decisive work of God. Through the proclamation, reception of the gospel. But but it's not until the actual end of this passage, and we're going to end with this this morning, that Paul helps us understand what exactly is the nature of conversion? Like, okay, I get all these spiritual realities, critically important, but but from an experiential, existential standpoint, what does conversion actually feel like? How does it play out in real life in in a very experiential, gritty, earthy kind of way? Look at verses 8 to 10. Point three Conversion consists of a reorientation of the heart. Reorientation of the heart. You know, when the Thessalonians came to to faith in Christ, they quickly became an example, if you look back at verse 7, to all the believers in Achaia and Macedonia. It it certainly helped that Thessalonica was was situated at the intersection of um, some really important trade routes. And the city was actually some 100,000 people roughly, which was a crazy big place with a a global mobile population for the time. And so the testimony of their conversion, this report of what God has done in their life, look at verse 8, it sounded forth so far and wide that Paul and Silas and Timothy said, listen, we we don't even need to tell anybody about what's going down because everybody is talking about this. They didn't even have social media. So, So what were people saying? Paul wants them to know. What was the news? Were people saying, hey, did you hear about the Thessalonians? 
day started going to church. Crazy. (laughs) Or they got into the whole Jesus thing. Never would have seen that coming. Or, hey, look at the Thessalonians. They're taking a new interest in spiritual things. No. No, that's not the report. Look at verse 9. People reported, quote, the kind of reception we had among you. What's that? The effect of Paul's preaching of the gospel back in verse 5. And how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. He's, he's filling out in detail what he meant by receiving the gospel back in verse 6. Why is this so important? What, what exactly does conversion consist of? What's its nature? Well, it's important because we live in a culture and a community that I would argue is still steeped in the vestiges of Christianity. So, if you ask a random person on the street or you go to a squirrels game and just grab some random guy walking up the steps with a beer, are you a Christian? All kinds of people will say in this community, yes, yes. But what does being a Christian actually mean? What does it actually look like in the realm of our experience? Well, well, the experience of conversion, if you're looking for one word, you want to go simple, look for one word. Look at verse 9. It's actually a two-word phrase. Second part of the verse. What is conversion all about? You turned. You turned. What's conversion? Pastor, you just keep throwing around these big words. That's like why I didn't want to come to church today. Don't say that. It's a big word, but it's simple definition. You turned. You turned. Okay, explain. You turned to God from idols. You turned away from serving false gods and waiting for them to deliver you to make everything wrong right. And you turned toward God, serving the living and true God, finding your satisfaction in him, waiting for him to deliver you and waiting for him to make everything wrong right. You turned. And for the Thessalonians, the the idols that they turned from were real physical images in real physical temples. And, and that is certainly true in many parts of the world today. But not here. Why do I say that? Because in our city, false gods are not one bit less real, but they are way more subtle. Which is why talking with a pastor friend from Croatia this past week, we both agreed that being a Christian in this country is in large measure harder than it is in Croatia where there is active persecution. Why? Because our idols are more deceptive. They're subtle. What, think about this. What do we worship? What do we serve? What, what do we wait upon to make everything wrong right? What do we ask to deliver us? Well, we ask our career to do that. We ask sexual ecstasy to do that. We ask money to do that. We ask comfort to do that. We ask entertainment to do that. Security, our image, the, the success and achievements of our kids. We, we serve and we wait on all those things, asking them to deliver us and make everything wrong right. That's what we do. And friend, to the degree you do that, please hear the Lord saying to you this morning, you have embraced a lie. You've embraced a lie. Why? Because there is only one living and true God, and it is not your career. It's Jesus. There's only one living and true God, and it's not sexual ecstasy. It's Jesus. There's only one living and true God and it's not the money in your bank account or what people think of you or what you even think of yourself, friend. It's Jesus. So stop serving what can never satisfy your soul. Stop stop waiting for what will inevitably crumble and fall and disappoint you to make everything 
wrong right. Don't do that. Only Jesus can do that, and only Jesus will do that. Which is why I say that conversion to Christianity doesn't consist fundamentally in going to church. Conversion to Christianity doesn't consist fundamentally in in cleaning up your life, (laughs) making better choices. Conversion to Christianity doesn't consist fundamentally in and hanging out with Christian friends, or singing Christian songs, or, or saying Christian prayers. Conversion to Christianity consists fundamentally in turning away from false gods and asking them to deliver and save you, and turning toward the one and true living God and waiting for Him to deliver you, and Him to save you, and Him to satisfy your longing soul because you were made to know Him. Conversion consists of a reorientation of the core allegiance and spiritual affections of your heart. It's not about changing your religious brand. It's about finding a new master. What is it? It's a reorientation of the heart. How do you know if it's happened? Visible, recognizable fruit. When you see that fruit, Where do you turn to give credit for its presence? God. Why is serving and waiting for Jesus so important? Because he's the only one, look at verse 10, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You you realize he's... Jesus isn't a religious option. It's not like you've got, well, let's go religion shopping. Which one works for you? And I like this. Oh, you like that? Well, kumbaya, my love. That's insanity. It's insanity. Because there's a day of accountability coming, friend. And unless, unless you are found in Christ, unless you die following Jesus, trusting Jesus, waiting for Jesus to deliver you, waiting for Jesus to make everything wrong right, you will be found wanting and you will perish under the righteous judgment of God. You'll be judged by him, not not according to how you measure up to other people, but according to your relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, you'll have no do-overs. You'll have no second chances. Wrath is coming and God's glory will be vindicated. His righteousness will be rewarded. Evil will be punished. The end is clear because God's already revealed the final chapter of the story. So remember the main point, okay? Not just this sermon, but our whole time in First Thessalonians. Living in light of the end, start with choosing to follow the only one who can deliver us in the end. That's the point. That's what conversion is all about. Choosing to receive the word of the gospel. Choosing to turn from false idols to serve and wait for the living and true God. Living in light of the end, in other words, starts with a critical turn. That's the first step. With conversion. And I pray that no one listening to me this morning fails to end well because you didn't begin well. And and if, as you're listening to me talk about conversion, you believe before the Lord with affirmation from the saints around you that you have begun well, that you have made that critical turn, then write this message off. It's not for you. There's no application. No. Fall to your knees this week and thank God that he has been merciful to you. And then get busy, confident in God's sovereign, powerful mercy, helping all the people around you make that same critical turn 
so that it so far as it depends upon you, nobody who knows you or spends time with you or lives with you, so far as it depends upon you, would get to that end and not be ready. Coming to faith in Christ is not a religious option among equal competitors, friends. It is your only hope for deliverance in the end that is coming. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we said at the beginning, we really need simple. Thank you that with a lot going on here, this is still simple. Thank you for reminding us that conversion produces recognizable fruit. Thank you for reminding us that that it's a result of a decisive work of your mercy as the gospel is proclaimed and received. And Lord, please, please open our eyes right now to see and know honestly, truthfully, if we've made that turn. Lord, I pray if there are men and women in this room or listening later who are completely deceived and think they've made the turn but you know they haven't. I ask that the gospel would be coming to them this day with power and the Holy Spirit and full conviction. And that they would turn from false gods to serve you, the one living and true God, and to wait for your son from heaven, Jesus, whom you raised from the dead, who alone can deliver us from the wrath to come. Lord, for all of us, we ask that you would teach us as a people through the gifts of your word, through the gift of the sacraments, community, prayer, singing. Teach us to wait for you. Use this whole book to help us live with the end in view. And I pray that there would be no one who gets to that end and fails to finish well because they never began well. Do that beginning work in many hearts, I pray. Amen.